0: So let's dive into our, our text this morning and our uh, our preaching is gonna come from Romans 1.18. And I, I really wanna say that because uh, we do something a little different here at Corner Canyon Church. We go verse by verse through the Bible, through the Word of God, and um, when you do that, you don't really skip verses, you just handle it all. Even verses that maybe someone might be uncomfortable with or is, or is difficult, or maybe it's a question you've had. We handle all the verses of the Bible. We go verse by verse. And so we are not skipping Romans 1.18. We're going right into it today. And we're gonna learn a lot of cool stuff about what God has to tell us about his truth. Um, and so we believe both the Old and the New Testament are the inspired Word of God. They're without error and they both point to Jesus. They have the same teaching um, and they're inspired from the same God of the universe. And so um, we're just gonna look at God's Word here starting with our Old Testament a lesson from Psalm 19, uh, one through six, showing the clarity of God's truth in all of creation. So looking at Psalm 19, one, hear now the holy and errant Word of God which comes out like a bridegroom leaving a chamber, like a strong man runs course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heavens and circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. And that concludes our Old Testament lesson, word from God. And now, of course, our New Testament a lesson, by. we're just doing one verse. Doesn't mean you're gonna get a five minute sermon though, so don't think that, okay? We're going through one verse, and this, is a, this verse is kind of a big deal um, here. So Romans 1.18, hear now God's holy and errant word. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That concludes the reading of God's holy word this morning. Let's pray that God would bless and anoint the preaching of his word, that we would grow by hearing it, that we would better understand it this morning. Gracious God, um, we're thankful that um, we get to come together to hear your truth and be changed and transformed to understand who you are, because we don't really understand who we are unless we understand fully what you are, Lord. You are God. You are the infinite holy God of the universe who has created us, sustains us, and gives us life. And Lord, if there's somebody here who has not trusted in Jesus, who has not received Jesus as their Lord and Savior of their life, I pray that you would work through the preaching of your word to change and convict their hearts, to trust in you, Jesus, to have forgiveness of sins and eternal life forever, Lord. And for all those listening in the live stream, Lord, we pray that your word would go out also here, but electronically, Lord, that people would hear the good news of the gospel and have eternal life knowing you, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your sacrifice, for all that you've done for us. May you be glorified this time and forevermore. Amen. In Jesus' name, amen. So in our series on the Book of Romans so far, we've made it through the introduction. We get all this cool kind of gospel stuff in the beginning, a sampling of God's uh, grace, that we're saved by grace and faith alone. And that's been super encouraging. Um, but today, it's not gonna be encouraging. No, it's gonna be still very encouraging. Um, we enter the, the first major section of the book of Romans. People have called this section the diagnosis section. Um, This is the part of the book of Romans where Paul shows us that we have a problem. Um, We don't like to hear about problems, do we? But Paul goes right into it. And the problem is that we are all obviously sinners. Every single one of us is wicked and messed up. We all have issues. And so what Paul's gonna do here um, in chapter one um, is he is gonna prove that uh, the Gentiles or the non-religious people are messed up and sinful. Then in chapter two, he's gonna go to the Jewish people, which Paul is a Jew, and so he's gonna go to the Jewish people and say, yeah, the Jewish people and even religious people are sinful, wicked, and messed up. And so Paul's overall point is those inside the church Are messed up and are need to be delivered and those um, outside of the church are messed up and definitely need to be delivered so then you're like okay well that's kind of like a Debbie Downer that's kind of depressing you know why is like why is Paul doing this like what's your deal Paul well he does this did he goes through all this this stuff telling how messed up the human race is because he wants to expose that we have a problem so that he can then in turn provide a solution to that problem you see The bad news makes the good news of the gospel all the more sweeter, all the more uh, beautiful. Um, And we we really don't even understand a solution if we think about it. We don't understand a solution unless we first understand the problem at hand. Um, Imagine a world, and this would be a great world. I mean, I'm not a big fan of cancer. Um, But imagine a world for a moment where no one has cancer. And then some scientist, some smart guy, you know, he's like, hey, I found the cure for cancer. It's like, yeah, nobody has it. What's the big deal, man? I mean, that doesn't solve anybody's problem. You came up with a cure for cancer. I guess you're kind of flexing your intellectual muscles there. But yeah, no one has a problem with cancer in this hypothetical scenario. So I mean, you know, what's the problem here? But imagine, and you do have cancer, and this scientist guy comes up with a cure for cancer. You're gonna be like, that's the greatest news ever i i have cancer i thought i was going to die but now this cure is going to save my life and so the the good news it becomes good news the solution actually makes sense um you know i mean if your family's if your family's already had dinner and you go out and buy in and out for them you're like whose problem are you solving there it's like no we're already full we've already eaten you know it doesn't even make any sense and so paul's going to be exposing here uh, this issue that human beings are evil uh, messed up and because we are evil Obviously, since God is just, we are deserving of God's just judgment and his news he's gonna get to, we're in the diagnosis, diagnosis section, but in the deliverance section, he's gonna say, yeah, and Jesus has come to save you from that judgment. He's come to forgive you of all of your sins. And so it's like, you know, we have to remember this as Christians because when we go around telling unbelievers that Jesus saves or believe in Jesus, he's gonna save you. Um, I've, I've heard unbelievers say this, like, what do I need saving from? I don't have a problem. I'm. I have a big house. I have you know five cars. I'm. I'm successful uh, in my career. I have everything I need in life. I don't have any problems, Pastor Nate. So why why do you why do I need Jesus for anything? And so Paul comes out swinging here with the big gun, showing yeah everybody's got a problem. Even those who are rich and successful and pros- prosperous. Everybody's got a problem, and that problem is sin. And so Paul starts off saying okay. Everybody believes and knows that God exists. And in this section, he's gonna show us that that's not good news actually for those who do not trust in Jesus because they can't claim that they didn't know any better. They know better. And so this is an issue here we see in Romans 1.18. So let's look at our text this morning. For the wrath of God... Is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth so you see it i mean paul goes right for it this morning i mean it says here that god is angry and wrathful and um to those who are living in sin and rebellion against him And uh, he's talking about all those, by the way, just so we're not confused, all those who do not trust in Jesus, all those who are outside of Christ and all who remain in unbelief and reject Christ. And they're under this judgment of God. And um, look at how Jesus himself puts it those who believe are spared from this judgment. So this judgment, this wrath uh, that God has against all this ungodliness, when people believe in Jesus, they are spared from that problem of wrath, and that is the problem here. Even when you read something like John's Gospel, which is a great uh, evangelistic tool to show people of the grace in Jesus. John 3, 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So you're, if you're outside of Christ, you are condemned. That's what this is saying. This is the words of Jesus uh, here. John 3, 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So the issue here is that we are under, if we don't believe in Christ, we are under this wrath and condemnation. Now, I didn't mean to like preach sinners in the hands of the angry God like some kind of you know uh, hellfire and brimstone sermon, but this is exactly what the text says. And I think it's helpful because we don't, many times in the evangelical church, we don't hit these topics head on. And so what ends up happening in the church is that people start making God into Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Or Barney or some, you know, purple dinosaur. They make him into some, you know, fluffy character, you know, who never gets mad at evil, never punishes wrongdoing, never punishes wickedness. And God in this picture is not God. He's like some cosmic grandpa that spoils grandchildren with treats and toys. You know how grandparents are, right? I mean, all, all these kind of things. But when you read the Bible and you look at all of it, you know, Jesus is not some, like, you know, free-loving hippie all the time when people betray him in Birkenstocks and everything. He's not like that. He tells the Pharisees. He says to these, these people that are oppressing widows and orphans that are living in an unjust, evil way, he says to these false teachers, You brood of vipers. So we have to remember that, you know, that this, you know, made-up God of Barney or whatever, or Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, this is not the God of the Bible. This is an idol. Um Because the God of the universe, he is the greatest, maximally greatest possible being, which means he has infinite and maximal justice. He has infinite and maximal holiness. If he didn't have those things, he wouldn't be God because God as the greatest, by definition, God is the greatest because he's God, has to have maximal justice. If he doesn't have justice, then he isn't the greatest. Because I can think of a greater being, namely a being that has maximal justice, infinite justice, and holiness. And so what happens when you sin against an infinite being, a being who is infinitely just? You make a cosmic treason against this infinitely pure, just being. Well, if you sin against an infinite being, you deserve an infinite punishment. And so this shows us how we need a savior, Jesus, to save us from this infinite punishment. And so Paul's point in Romans 1.18 is that all human beings know this deep down inside. We know this is the case. Even those who say they don't believe in God, even those who say they are not Christian, they may claim that with their mouth, but deep down inside, they know this God of the universe. Um, and in Romans 1.18, it says it, the Greek word here for suppress... It's to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. righteousness. It means to hold down or detain. Now, let me ask you a question. I know here in Utah, we're really um, hard pressed for pools. I think there's only like one person in this church like who has a pool. I mean, in California, there are a lot of people that have pools because the weather's terrific there. Not so much everything else, but the weather's great right there um, in California. so, yeah, uh, you know, but if you ever travel to a luxurious location where people have pools, you'll know if you're holding a, a beach ball or some, you know, floaty thing underneath the water, you know, so you're trying to stop it from popping out. Who's done that, by the way? Is that just me? Okay, we've all done that, all right? You're holding that, you're holding that beach ball or that thing and as you're trying to get it not to pop out and to see how long you can uh, do that. So when you're holding down that beach ball, right, and you're suppressing it, you're detaining, you're holding it underwater, you're trying to hide it from coming out, right? When you're holding that beach ball, do you think you believe that beach ball, uh, you hold it underwater, do you think you, you know that beach ball exists? Yeah, I mean, you're holding it down, you know it exists, and so holding down something, suppressing something, assumes and presupposes it. It really does assume that you know it exists because, after all, you're suppressing it. You're holding it down. And so this shows that, yeah, unbelievers know that God exists. There is no such thing as a genuine atheist deep down inside. Um, now, obviously, um, they, they believe that God exists, but they don't have a personal relationship with him. They don't trust in him as their Lord and Savior. Um, And this is not just like my opinion. This is according to the rest of Romans. I'm going to read the rest of this. This shows us that God, God is God. He knows our minds and our hearts better than we do. He's infinite. He knows everything that's true. He knows our, he knows us better than we know ourselves And so he knows what's going on. And so he says here in his word that all men know God. All men believe that God exists. They may not believe in God, but they believe that God exists. Romans uh, 119 through 21 here. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible characteristics or attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. There is no hiddenness of God. God is not hidden. Clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. They can't say they didn't know any better. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. They knew God. Listen to that. They knew God. They knew God. But they became futile in their thinking, And their futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. So, every, the Greek word genosko, I mean, when that's used, that, that, every time, every gloss of that word, I mean, it always includes belief that you believe something. It's never detached from belief. So, if you know something, you also believe something. It's like, yeah, I know that one plus one equals two, but I don't believe it. That doesn't make any sense. So, if you know something, you also believe it, and that's true of the Greek word um, genosko here. So yeah, he is. Te- Paul is teaching, inspired by the Holy Spirit, this profoundly like shocking, weird. I mean, we might think it's weird, very strange. The people who say that God does not exist, they actually know that God exists. Um, and people are like, well, how, you know, how can this be consistent? with people who claim to be atheists, people who claim to say, I mean, there's people you run into, I'm not really sure if God exists, you know, I'm not really. How is that, uh, how, how, do, how do we reconcile this? Well, we have to realize that beliefs are really complex and you can even have contradictory beliefs. People have found that that you can have beliefs that are intention or contradictory. People, I've run into people that have said stuff that are contradictory to me all the time. So people can have bizarre, contradictory beliefs. Uh, human psychology, I mean, shows us that people can be self-deceived, too. Um, we all know of, a, of an overly protective mother who would tell everybody their child is perfect. Oh, not my Sarah, you know? You know one of those mothers, yet, you know, she kind of like is is kind of holding her breath for when she's going to get a call from the principal. We know the overprotective mother that knows their child is secretly a hellion and they're trying to hide it. They're, they're involved in self-deception there. They're, uh, they believe something in their heart of hearts, but they and and um, and they say that their child is good, but you know their actions show differently in how they they operate. And you you know, combine that with the fact that you have beliefs that you've never thought of and that you're not even aware of. I mean, the human psychology is so complicated. I mean, we we learn things of how complicated we think about things. We've uh, we we have things going on that we're not even fully aware of. Um, let me give you a funny example. Um, You've never, I'm gonna tell you a belief that you believe right now that you've never thought of in your entire life, but you believe it. It's never come before your mind. There are at least three deers, or three moose, whatever animal, insects, you can do anything. There are at least three deers in the state of Utah. Here you go. You believe that and you've never thought of that because it's super bizarre, right? But you believe that, you know? Um, And so beliefs can be hidden. Suppressed, contradictory. Without even fully realizing, we don't really know what's going on up here all the time. We're, we're, I mean, the human brain. I mean, it's it's like we only have like uh, I think less than fifteen percent access to it. So there's a lot of complexity here. So this seems to cut out the bite that this is silly uh, and implausible. Now, just because unbelievers are really believers on some level, it doesn't mean that they have a positive personal relationship with the Lord. So to give you an example, so I believe that Denzel Washington exists, right? Um, but me believing in the existence of Denzel Washington doesn't mean that I have a personal relationship. I wish to, I'd like to be friends with Denzel Washington. But it doesn't mean I have a personal relationship with Denzel, although I do trust him to make excellent movies, he's my favorite actor right now currently. Mel Gibson lost that mantle unfortunately. <coughs> so anyways, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard for me to talk about in front of people. Um, and so while unbelievers believe the fact that God exists, they don't trust in him. Right. And so now if this is a the case, then why do we offer reasons and, um, evidences for Christianity? Why, you know, why do we do this? Christians do this. Um, well, the Bible commands us in first Peter three fifteen to give a defense for your faith. Um, but we ultimately, uh, give, uh, reasons and evidences for Christianity to expose that, hey, this is not a uh, intellectual matter. This is a heart issue. It exposes that we can't use intellectual excuses that Christianity is unreasonable. But it's a moral issue that we don't want to have a, a a relationship with God. You might be thinking still, oh my goodness sake, this is such a weird belief. I, I've never heard this before. Strange belief that the Bible is teaching here. How like can you believe this? How, I mean, there, there's just no reason for this assertion that Paul makes. There's no reason to believe any of this. And, um, I want to offer a contrary opinion. Surprise, surprise that there is a, a good bit of evidence that this is the case that people do in fact know that God exists. Um, and the weird thing is, I have, I mean, I've had, well, me personally, I've done a lot of um, evangelism to skeptics, to atheists, to agnostics. I've done that because I used to be one. So I, I tend to, I have a heart for that kind of ministry. And so in my time of, of doing evangelism to um, skeptics, I have had them admit, admit to me, to my face, well over 20 times that, yeah, they secretly know that God exists and they're suppressing the truth. Straight up, have said that to me. Like, and we're going to see some stuff that suggests that, but I've had people say that to me. Um, And um, I've had um, probably well over 400 interactions. I used to be like a person that would go out and evangelize every single day. I mean, now that I'm a pastor, I don't need to do that. No, I'm just kidding. But I mean... (laughs) I do it in other ways now, right? But I used to be like on the internet, I would talk to people and talk to atheists and would just talk to hundreds of them. I would talk to two every day and it was like, I did that instead of playing video games, which is pretty productive, I think, right? You get to talk to a lot of people that way. Um, and so I, what I found in talking to hundreds and hundreds of atheists, I asked this question just to see where they're at. So, so interesting, like have you like looked at like the over 45 academic arguments for God's existence that are pretty good? Most people? Never, I mean, I would almost say all people. They've. I've never looked into that. You've never looked into that. So we're talking about the most important thing like in life, whether or not God exists, the meaning and the purpose of life, whether the Lord exists. And you have not looked into any of those arguments. Okay. That means you're probably headed or aimed towards something else. Because if you're thinking about it rationally here, like we're talking about the meaning of life, the whole reason why you exist, the whole reason why you get up in the morning and work and do things is for God. And, you know, that's like whether or not God exists, that's like the biggest question I could ever think of. And these people are not even searching out the reasons for it. Um, so I think that's evidence of something deeper going on there. I can remember, and I have so many of these stories, one of my good friends from high school who I maintained a friendship with in college and in graduate school, and so um, anyways, he, was, uh, he would claim to be a, didn't believe in God. And so I give him this, this philosophical argument over AIM. Who remembers AIM, by the way? Like, okay, I feel really bad, I feel old. No one even knows what America, online, is a messenger. Okay, used to be a thing. It was over A. Yeah, I. M. So I give him this like argument. I lay out the steps, and I give the support for each of the steps. And he's like, "You know that? Yeah, that evidence looks pretty good." And I'm like, "Excuse me? You think it's pretty good? Yeah, I think God exists. I mean, I tell all our friends that I'm an atheist. I just like to just do that. I'm like, Would you just like to just do that. Uh, okay. Um, he's like, "Don't tell anybody." I'm like, "Yeah. Now I'm telling the whole church." So <laughs> I'm not giving you his name though. So I guess I'm not technically breaking his trust there. But um, yeah. Um, I can remember my friend who we, I was you know, spending some time evangelizing to my friend in California, um, and he came to my work for three hours. It was a dead day, thankfully, so I didn't lose my job talking to my friend about God's existence for three hours. It was a gem job, no one was going in, okay? People were at home eating Haagen-Dazs. Um, so, you know, he comes in and he visits me for, 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 for three hours. He's trying to find a way out of all these arguments I've given him. He's like writing notes. I mean, he's like, he looks chaotic. Like his hair's all messed up, disheveled, and he's writing on paper. Well, what about this? Can I get out by saying this? And I would like, say, what about this? He's like, oh, you know, he was like so upset by God existing. And then finally he said, yeah, I really just can't get out of this. What uh, am he's like, looks off into the distance. Like, when am I going to start taking seriously this whole thing? When am I going to start taking this seriously? He's like, "I'll do it when I get older." <laughs> I mean, it's incredible, and I have so many stories like that. I can go on and on, but we want to, you know, go light off some fireworks. I get it. Um, now, um, one of the things is that uh, we do offer evidence to show, as I said earlier, to expose that it's a spiritual problem. The person doesn't have an intellectual problem. It's a, it's it's a moral problem. Um, and, and Frank Turek exposes this. Uh, he He's a guy who travels to churches and to conferences, and I've seen him do this every place he goes nearly. He asks the audience, how many of you in the audience have a friend or a relative that's not a Christian that's sincerely seeking after the truth, that is searching for God? Never any hands. Uh, I think once I saw one. I remember back, but no one does it. And so this is a moral issue. And even intellectuals grant that 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 not believing in God is a moral issue, something they don't want to believe. They don't want to believe this truth. They want to suppress this truth in many ways. So this is from prominent uh, philosophy professor Thomas Nagel, very smart guy. Um, teaches at one of those like Harvard-like universities. I don't remember the university he teaches at, but he's a smart guy. He says, I speak from experience, being strongly subject to this fear myself. I want atheism to be true, the belief that God does not exist, and I am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent, well-informed people I know are religious believers. Wow. It isn't just that I don't believe in God. Naturally, I hope that I'm right in my belief. It is the hope that there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. My guess is that this cosmic authority problem is not a rare condition. Well, we can agree on that. So he doesn't want God to be Lord over his life. He doesn't want that authority. And Dan Barker, uh, I just watched this yesterday and posted this on Facebook. Uh, This is super bizarre, Um, but... um, he admits probably the same thing, but way more explicit in a discussion he's having with a, with a Christian. Um, he is the president of the Freedom From Religion organization. You know, the guys that get mad for having Bibles in schools and all these kind of things, he's one of those guys. Um, so this is what he says, even if Jesus did exist, even if I agreed with Justin, the guy he's talking to, a hundred percent, yep, he rose from the dead, yep, there is a God, yep, I don't deny any of that. That does not mean that he is my Lord. If he did exist and and, and he did create this hell that I have to go to, then let him prove to me what a huge macho man that he is and send me to hell. I will happily go to hell. It would be worse than hell to bow down to a Lord who would create a place like hell. I cannot accept Jesus as Lord if you want To say he is Lord and he has power over me, you know, might makes right, then fine. But he has not won me over as a follower. So, and this is said after uh, Dan was enabled to answer the very good evidence for the resurrection of Jesus from an historical standpoint. So this is not an intellectual issue, this is a moral issue. I was listening to a, well renowned scientist uh, named Peter Atkins on this show called Unbelievable uh, Radio. And Hugh Ross gave a design argument from the intricacy of the universe to God's existence. It was very clear. Um, and so, it, like, Peter didn't answer any of these things. And so, Justin Brierley, the host of the radio program, is like, um, okay, so Peter, what would it take? What would it take to convince you that Christianity is true? And, um, and, um, he said, uh, then he asked him to follow up. You know, if the stars aligned, and they said, Peter, believe in, God, in me, I am God. And you know what Peter said? He says uh, he would chalk that up to personal madness. Crazy. That's something a, uh, an English person, he's English, so he, madness, something that English people say. Um, uh, Peter Atkins even went further to say, he's like, even if I died and I went to heaven and saw Peter at the pearly gates, I would assume, I still assume it's all just a dream. So yeah, we have unbelievers openly admitting that there's just no amount of evidence that would convince them to follow Jesus. They are clearly hostile uh, to God here. And you know what, I'm gonna be really honest with you. Um, um, It's not hard for me to believe. It's not hard for me to comprehend that people are trying to run from God. because personally, if I'm being honest, I'm one of the greatest offenders of that. I Not defenders, offender of that. Because um, I have suppressed the truth of God and unrighteousness um, uh, less than half my life when I was a teenager. And um, I knew that Christianity was true. I knew it deep down inside. But I was trying to run from God. I was trying to escape because I hated him. So I'm not like talking down on these people like, oh, these horrible atheist, look how crazy this, this was me, okay? I'm not trying to have some self-righteous thing here on these people, this was me. I did not want to acknowledge God as Lord of my life. You know what I would tell myself as a teenager? I mean, I'd do this pretty often whenever I was about to do something that was immoral or wrong or indecent and dishonest. So you know, it's really unclear like whether or not this whole Christianity thing is true. So you know, I should like do whatever I feel like, you know? I mean, it's 50-50, who knows? if it's actually true, and you know, so I'm not gonna let like weird rules that I'm not even sure about, I'm not gonna let rules or ideas of how I should live my life, I'm not gonna let that ruin my good time in life. I wanna live my life however I want. And so, you know, I lived as a teenager suppressing the truth, living in absolute rebellion. I hated church so much, it's so bizarre that I'm a pastor because like no one hated church more than me. Um, I, I hated, like I would dread going to church All week, I would like sleep in, and you try to like hope that your parents forget kind of thing, and like look at the time. Um, So uh, yeah, it was really bad. Um, I hated hearing about the scriptures. I hated to read the Bible. I didn't like it. Um, And my friends, who by the way were unusually forceful, I look back and I'm like, those people were crazy. Like my friends, my best friend, create so forceful and aggressive. I, I'm not a forceful and aggressive type. So I look back on that and I'm like, that is really intense what they did. They like maybe go to a Bible study in the book of Romans. And so I'm kind of passive aggressive because I'm a sinner, right? And so during the Bible study I was like making jokes, trying to distract the discussion because I didn't want to like hear any of it so I blocked it all out. And I just realized this just as I was writing the sermon. They went over Romans one and I was there and they were reading about suppressing the truth and I blocked it out. I, I can't remember, I blocked out all of it because I didn't want to hear any words from God. I hated it so much. So I tried to joke and distract uh, everything. Um, my friend Stephen was so forceful one time he made me throw out all my secular CDs. He threw them out himself. He actually got them back later, but anyways. Um, <laughs> I mean, and so, um, and so I, I went to college, and I realized, you know, um, this running from God is just destroying me. It's catching up to me. I, became, I started becoming a really vindictive, angry, bitter person in life. Um, my friends would tell me that. You're getting really angry, Nate. Um, and so um, I remember one time my Christian friend Steve said this to me. You know I'm so thankful that I'm your friend because I'd hate to be your enemy. Yikes! So I really started you know questioning this path I was taking in life, and I started you know looking at Christianity on this very academic level, you know more and more, begin researching it. But I always tell myself in the back of my mind, you know I don't know if this is true or not. I try to like still obfuscate things, and maybe I'm going through a hard time, and I'm using this whole Christianity thing as an emotional crutch. So I, I still wasn't in, yet I was still struggling a lot. And then one night, my forceful friends sat me down to a debate between a Christian and an atheist, and uh, I mean, they had tried to do everything on on me, I mean, to try to get me to become a Christian, um, you know, try to talk to me for hours about it. Um, my friend Stephen is the most persistent person I've ever met in my life, and I, I, I still... Uh, talked to him today, um, and he hasn't changed in many ways. Um, but um, he sat me down in his upstairs room and put on an audio file around a debate between a Christian pastor and an atheist scientist. And the pastor happened to have a PhD in philosophy and knew the arguments for God's existence pretty well. I didn't know that then. But I just, you know, oh, check out this debate, this discussion between a pastor and an, and a, uh, scientist, uh, a scientist who happens to be an atheist. And so... Um, They sit me down um, in in Steve's room and I I listened to it. They're downstairs doing stuff and I was just kind of captivated by it. And um, as I was uh, uh, listening uh, to this, I was just blown away about how clear God's existence was. I mean, uh, as this guy Bonson, Greg Bonson went on, he, he would describe how if you're an atheist, you can't make sense out of universal laws, like the laws of logic. Because you, you can't heat up the laws of logic. You can't eat them. They're not physical, right? You can't play baseball with the laws of logic. They're immaterial. They're not physical, okay? So, I mean, you know, he go on about how, you know, that you, if you, you, this can only make sense if God exists, that there are these laws of logic. And I was just, I was captivated by this, so impressed. And the, the, the basic point that this Christian philosopher was trying to prove is that if you don't believe in God, then there's just no way you could explain any laws. Uh, laws of morality, what you should or should not do objectively. Um, laws that are binding in all human beings, like the laws of logic and morality that I've just mentioned. And so these things, he explained, are grounded and founded on God and his nature, who is perfectly logical and moral. And um, of course, I think the most obvious thing is if there is a law, there has to be a lawgiver, right? And only God has the right to be the universal lawgiver of morality and logic. And I believed in these things. And what shocked me the most about this discussion um, is how the atheist had just no response to these arguments. He had nothing to say of substance, no response, mostly just mocking. Um, and I was just, I remember being so shocked and blown away at how I'm like, obviously God exists. And I have been a fool. All of my life, um, and during this, like, you know, two hour debate, I mean, I just realized what an absolute liar and fraud I am, and how my soul is just like emotionally unraveling during this debate. And then it um, finally came to the conclusion of the debate, and this is Greg Bonson's closing statement. And I just, I could feel myself collapsing on the inside, and I just, I, I almost felt. Like God was talking to me through Greg Bonson, like saying to me, You've been hiding and running. Your game is up. You're a fraud and you're a liar. And I felt that so clearly and distinctly in my heart. And so I'll I'll read you the part of the debate. I never thought I'd be reading a debate in front of a whole congregation. This is so bizarre. Um, But I want to share my story. Um, But I'll I'll read the part of the the debate that convicted me of my sin and my, my rebellion against God. So this is what Bonson says. He says the transcendental argument, which is that argument for morality and logic, for the existence of God has not been answered by Dr. Stein. It's been evaded and been made fun of, but it hasn't been answered. That's what we're here for, rational interchange. The transcendental argument says the proof of the Christian God is that without God, one cannot prove anything. Notice the argument doesn't say atheists don't prove things or that they don't use logic and science or laws of morality. In fact, they do. The argument is that their worldview cannot account for what they are doing. In their worldview, there is is not a consistent with what they are doing. In their worldview, there are no laws. There are no abstract entities, universals, laws, and prescriptions. There's just physical, material universe, naturalistically explained as the way things happen to be. That's not law-like. Or universal, and therefore their worldview does not account for logic, science, and morality. But atheists, of course, use logic, science, and morality in this argument. Atheists give continual evidence the fact that in their heart of hearts, they are not atheists. In their heart of hearts, they know the God I'm talking about. This God made them. Reveals himself continually to them through the natural order, through their conscience, and through their very use of reason. They know this God, and they suppress the truth about him. And one of the ways that we know that they suppress the truth about him is because they continue to use laws of logic, science, and morality, though their worldview does not account for them. And he goes on to say in Romans, the first chapter, Paul says God is making himself known continually and persuasively to all men. And so that men do not have an excuse for their rejection of the existence of the Christian God. That isn't to say all men confess this God, not all own up to him as your heavenly father. Not all will submit to him. Some will continue to rebel. Some continue to devise their fool's errands and rationalizations as to why they do not believe in him. And so you, right, right then I knew, you know, kind of Ted writes. Thing. I felt like an ungrateful, spoiled child slapping my heavenly father in the face. But the only way I could slap him in the face is by sitting on his lap Well using logic, science, and morality, which is from him, comes from him ultimately, all the while rejecting him, running from him, and suppressing the truth. So in that moment, these arguments proved to me that I I had been suppressed. I knew that in my heart. I was in a rebellion against God. I was so angry at him, and it was this moment I realized what Jesus did for me. And so I I trusted him, and um, he saved me from my my bitterness, my vindictiveness, my anger, and my rebellion. And so I began following Christ, and I started going to church more than I ever had in my my entire life because I hated church. I actually enjoy going. Um, And so... because I, I knew in my heart I was running from God, and yet the amazing thing that I came to realize is that He is He ran after me and saved me, the chief of sinners. Um, and so, if you're here this morning and you think, "Oh, I'm too far gone. I've been running for a long time. I've been suppressing for a long time. I'm too far gone. And God can't save me." Well, He saved me. And I, well, let me tell you, I'm a train wreck, and He saved me. He could save you if you trust, believe, and receive Him as your Lord and Savior. He can save you and forgive you every sin you've ever committed. It is never too late. You can always turn to him. And when you stay focused on Christ and you look to Jesus Christ, God won't be angry and wrathful. You won't view him as angry and wrathful and that you're angry at him. All you'll see is grace and mercy. I love the way that one author put it um, from Gentle and Lowly, this book. He said, looking inside of ourselves, we can only anticipate harshness from heaven. Looking out to Christ, we can only anticipate gentleness. So trust in Jesus. Come to him. He will give you rest. He is gentle and kind and mighty to save. Amen.